You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Well, hey, church, my name is Nate. Good to be the pastor here. Glad you are here today. A couple things before we jump into the teaching is if you will just scan the back of that uh, seat if you're new and you'll see like a little QR code there. It says get connected. Uh, over the next couple weeks, we'll be sending out uh, a bunch of updates about our new facility and what's going on with it and, and how the construction process is going. We are uh, moving to 4700 San Mateo, a building we purchased as a church and uh, a place that we can uh, do some uh, ministry from that we're really excited about. And so if that's new news to you, uh, get signed up. You'll kind of get caught up to speed on where we are with our Be Good News initiative and all things uh, new facility as part of that. It's all all part of that uh, initiative. So we'd love to get you up to speed on that. So there's that. Uh, We're in a series called Emotional Intelligence, and each week we're talking about a different emotion that we sometimes deal with and what the Scripture says about it. Uh, we've been using the Sermon on the Mount as kind of our, our basis for the study, and so I want to encourage you, if you um, want to read the Sermon on the Mount this week, Matthew 5-7, to this is a really important section of Scripture to be reading. Uh, today we're talking about anger, and so anger is a subject matter that shows up in the text. I'm sure nobody in here struggles with anger at all. I'm sure you guys are all sort of peace-loving people and have never had an outburst of anger or said anything in anger that you have later regretted, but for the one of us or two of us in here that might know what that feels like, that's what the text is about today. Uh, this Sermon on the Mount is a really interesting sermon, and I want to highlight some things about the sermon just to start off with uh, before we jump into our text in, in Matthew 5 today. But the Sermon on the Mount is like a manifesto. It's Jesus sort of saying, hey, these are the, this is the unique ethic of my kingdom people, and there is a unique way that Christian people are supposed to be living. It's supposed to be identifiable, seeable, visible. Uh, you should be able to sort of, in culture, in society, be able to look into the world and go, oh, those are the kingdom people of Jesus. Like the, the way they're living is distinct from the rest of society. I can see what they're doing. It's almost like they're a light in the world, as Jesus calls us to be in Matthew 5.14. He says, I want you to be a light in the world. And so this light in the world is visible, it's seeable, it's identifiable. And so in this sermon, what Jesus is doing is saying, this is what it looks like to be light in the world. This is what it looks like for you to be identifiable uh, to the world around you. John Stott says the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. It is the nearest thing to a manifesto that he ever uttered uh, for, its, uh, for its own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. It's this Jesus saying, hey guys, if you want to know what it looks like to be a Christian and to do Christian things in the world, this is it. And so, man, if that's where you are in your faith journey, and you're like kind of on the outside looking in, you're going, what do I do? How do I live this life, this Christian life? Well, pick up Matthew 5 to 7, read it, and then start implementing that into your everyday life. And you'll start on your way to sort of kingdom living. Uh, there is probably no insult uh, that is 
greater or should bother Christians more than the insult, there's nothing different about you. Uh, that insult should really resonate with you deeply because you, you're called to be different. You're called to be a certain kind of different, a kingdom kind of different in the world. Again, going to John Stott, he says, there's no single paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount in which the contrast between Christian and non-Christian standards is not drawn. And so what's happening is, he'll say in the sermon, uh, you've heard that it was said, and it's usually some relaxation of the law. But I say to you, and then it's some enhancing of the law of God. And what, he, what he's doing is he's saying, I want you to see what the world's saying out here about how to live, and I want you to know that I'm taking it up a notch. That my sermon is calling you to a high standard of living. Well, what Jesus does, he preaches this sermon into a particular culture, and he's addressing the issues of that particular culture. Uh, Jesus is preaching this sermon to an honor-shame culture. That's the culture of the time. Uh, so when he's preaching this in the first century uh, in the Roman Empire, under the Roman rule, like the, he's preaching into an honor-shame culture. And so if you're reading the text and you're reading it from an honor-shame perspective, it has a certain resonance, a certain pop to it that you wouldn't necessarily get unless you're reading it from that culture perspective, which is kind of interesting because I think what's happening in American society right now is we are going through a cultural shift. Uh, we're experiencing it like live right now in action. Uh, we're experiencing a culture shift towards a, an honor-shame society. Like, that's the cultural shift that we're kind of in, into. Uh, and so this, this, this passage that we're going to study today, in fact, the sermon that, that if you were to spend time studying it, if you read it from the honor-shame perspective, it has a pop to it that you might not have experienced 10 years ago because there's been a cultural shift, a cultural change. Uh, Michael Gorman uh, describes the honor-shame culture this way. He says, simply defined... Honor and shame refer to the ongoing attribution uh, or loss of esteem by one's peers, family, social class, city, and so on. In Roman society, this respect was based primarily on such things as wealth, education, rhetorical skill, family pedigree, and political connections. These were the cultural status indicators. And what he's saying is he's saying, that in honor-shame culture, your honor or your shame is directly correlated to the view of others outside of you. And so you, you experience honor when others view you honorably, when the group that you're a part of the, or the family you're a part of is maintaining a certain sort of honor structure. In fact, in honor-shame cultures, when you are dishonored, your group is dishonored, your family is dishonored, uh, your particular you know, sort of subculture within society is dishonored, it's the right thing to do is to strike back. He says this, this is interesting, he says in this context, in this kind of context of honor-shame, where honor and shame come from the outside uh, to the inside, he says in this context, self-esteem would be conceived of as a ridiculous oxymoron. The only esteem one has is bestowed by this, uh, is not bestowed by the self, but by the group. And what he's saying here is an honor-shame culture, you, you, this idea that, that it doesn't matter what anybody thinks of you, what matters is what you think of yourself, that just doesn't exist. It, it feels like an oxymoron. That's not where your esteem, your honor, or your social shame comes from. In honor-shame culture, it comes from the outside in. It's what society thinks of you. It's what your group thinks of you. It's what culture thinks of you. It's what the subculture that you're trying to sort of hunker down with thinks of you. It, this idea of like self-esteem, that's, that's, that just doesn't make sense. See, in this environment, peer pressure, in the honor-shame environment, peer pressure is not negative or something to avoid, but is viewed as appropriate and welcome. So your group getting the other group to, to come to conformity to your sense of views, that's, that's normal in an honor-shame culture society. 
You see, in previous like generations of American culture, we were taught to have self-esteem. That's how, that's how I was taught. You know, when I sat in the classroom as a kid growing up, I heard the message over and over and over again. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks of you. It only matters what you think of yourself. That's all that matters. And so if you think about yourself as positive, that's all that matters. But not our shame culture says this, and you can see how this is resonating. What matters most is what a particular group, family, or society thinks of you. In our shame culture, it's not what you think of you that really matters. It's what the world outside of you thinks that, that matters. It's what society thinks of you that matters. And what you have in an honor-shame cultural dynamic is you have people sort of retaliating, putting pressure on to bring about conformity to others uh, around them. You see, in an honor-shame culture, retaliation is a value as its purpose is to protect the family, the group, the segment of society that provides you and the group honor. And so when you start reading the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see some things that start to resonate. In honor-shame culture, that didn't resonate maybe 10 or 15 years ago as we start to read it anew and afresh with these newly shaped American sort of eyes, these eyes shaped by uh, an increasing kind of honor-shame cultural dynamic. It was into an honor-shame society that Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You've heard it said, if they hit you, you hit back. You've heard it was said that when they strike you, you strike back harder. You've heard that it was said that, that if, they, if they take a pound of flesh, you get your pound of flesh. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you in the cheek, turn to him the other also. Or if somebody asks you to go a mile, go with him two miles. This idea of like non-retaliation, that was odd in the honor, shame, cultural society. That, was, that stood out. And when Christians showed up in, in that particular time and place and, and started living this life, when somebody struck you, you... You sought reconciliation. When someone came after you in retaliation, you didn't retaliate back. You didn't return evil for evil, but you, just, you came, up, you came as, a, as an ambassador of reconciliation, you, and you stepped into a ministry of reconciliation. That was new. That was odd. That was weird. And it's increasingly becoming new, odd, and weird in the society that you and I are living in. I think perhaps nowhere in the Bible is the kingdom distinction more apparent than in the non-retaliatory ethic taught by Jesus. This is, this is one of the places that makes Christians distinct. It makes them different in the world. It's one of the places where people on the outside looking in goes, man, you guys are different. Uh, you live out the principles of Jesus. You live out what Paul th- or Peter taught in 1 Peter 3, 9. He says, do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And so the rest of the world's out there going evil for evil. The rest of the world's out there retaliating. The rest of the world's out there you know, protecting their honor from those who on the outside have threatened their honor. But you, you don't do that. You bless. You live differently. N.T. Wright wrote about this passage we're studying today. He said, Jesus knew this world too. People of his day who wrote about what the world uh, describe incidents just like this. Romans insulting Jews. Samaritans attacking Jews, Jews fighting back, different Jewish Jewish parties insulting and attacking each other, and so on. And you can see that in American society. This group attacking that group, and that group attacking this group, and this group over here attacking that group. And you see this, they're reviling for reviling, evil for evil, insult for insult happening in the world around us. And in the the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who is a leader in non-retaliatory movements, echoing the words of Jesus, applying the words of Jesus, if we do an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we will be a blind and toothless nation, he says. So, So what is this kingdom ethic that Jesus is calling us to in the passage? Well, it's not merely the kingdom ethics not merely about what happens in your behavior or your exterior life. The the kingdom ethic really is born inside of you. 
And the kingdom ethic is not about just behavior modification. It's really about heart transformation. What Jesus is going to do is going to say, I want to look past just mere behavior, and I want to talk to you about what's going on inside of you, because that's where it starts for the Christian. He says, you've heard it said to those of old, you should not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to, count to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hellfire. And he says, what I want you to see here is that sin is birthed in the heart before it's displayed in behavior. Like what happens is, is that mur- you, you may say, I'm not a murderer, but in your heart, You've dehumanized somebody. You've robbed them from their humanity in your heart with the insults you've uttered underneath your breath. You've taken from them the right of their existence and living. You've, 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 you have, in some ways, murdered their existence in your psychology and the insults that you've, you've leveraged against them. It's in your heart where the sin happens. And so what do we do when we get angry? Like, how do we handle anger? Because anger is like a really good emotion. Anger is like a really great emotion. That we should be angry about certain things because the heart seeks justice. Like, what the heart wants is justice. The heart wants the world to be set to rights, wants yourself to be set to rights, wants everything around you to be set to rights. And the heart longs for justice. And, and Paul says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast what is good. Like, we should be angry about certain things. Like, we should be angry about sex trafficking. We should be angry about poverty. We should be angry uh, about sort of the, the vileness and hatred that happens. We should be angry about uh, violence in the streets. Like, those things should, should cause us to get angry, angry enough to do something about it. See, anger is an emotion that seeks justice. Like, when you feel anger, it's because you're feeling this feeling of needing justice. Like, you, you're not right, and you feel angry. And you're angry with yourself, and sometimes when you're angry with yourself, you take it out on other people. Or you're angry at other people because they're not right. And you're like, anger at them comes out of you. And so anger seeks, it's an emotion that seeks justice. And the more that you are not okay with you and, the, and with others, the more angry of a person you'll be. The more unsettled you are about who you are, the more settled you are about the people around you, boy, you will be an angry person. By the way, Honor-shame cultures are, are not all wrong. Uh, you do need a voice of acceptance from the outside, like, the, like you were made that way. No one was made to be alone. And so that desire to hear from the outside that you're acceptable and you're worthy and you're good, that's how God made you. He didn't make you to be alone. He made you to be in community. In fact, He proclaimed it over creation. It's not good for a man to be alone. And self-esteem culture is not all wrong either. You, you do all possess the Imago Dei. You're made in the image of God. You have inherent worth, value, dignity, and no one can take that away from you. But you do need an outside voice to speak to that inside place to set, start setting things right. Like you need it, the right outside voice. See, the outside voice you need to speak to your inner reality is the voice of God speaking over you, counseling you, talking to you, showing you the way. Uh, when you read 2 Corinthians 5.18, here's what you read. All this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of rec- reconciliation. Uh, when you hear reconciliation, you might think make friends again, make right, restore. So God brings about a ministry of restoration of relationships. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling, restoring, fixing broken relationships with the world, with humanity, to himself, 
not counting their trespass against them through forgiveness of sins and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So God shows up and he says, hey guys, I want you to know something. I have taken your sin and I've nailed it to the cross. I've taken care of the debt. Like everything that stood in the way of us, like all of our, all the things that made our relationship a broken relationship, I took care of. You can relax now. There's no debt to work off anymore. You don't have to worry about that. Like, well, you can relax now. We, we, we can be friends. Uh, we, can, we, can, we can be connected again. Look, I, I just want to just confess to you just quickly. It, it's natural to be angry at yourself. It, it's, it's natural to be angry at others. Because you're not okay and the world's not okay. <laughs> like, that's natural. But, but anger is dangerous. Like it's 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 dangerous. Anger is a hot emotion. It's full of energy. It's not patient at all. Anger wants justice now. For this reason, anger is the most difficult emotion to focus on righteous things. It's just very challenging. Uh, what Jesus points out in his illustration in verse 22, he says, hey, you know, you look at an angry person, what do they do? They're insulting. They're insulting people. They're calling people fools. They're ripping apart, tearing them down. They're acting out their anger in unhelpful ways. Well, well, how can you identify righteous anger from unrighteous anger? Like, what does that even look like? Uh, You might want to write this one down. You can identify righteous anger because it seeks reconciliation rather than retaliation. You can identify righteous anger because that anger is working towards fixing what's broken between human beings rather than trying to make somebody pay. Righteous anger is looking to mend the brokenness. Unrighteous anger is making somebody is, is, is trying to get that pound of flesh from somebody because you're angry at them. You're retaliating from <laughs> retaliating against them. This is the turn that Jesus takes in the text. He says, "For if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and first be reconciled." Like the anger that that moves the heart rightly. It's not an anger that moves to insult. It's not an anger that moves to calling people fools. It's the anger that moves to reconciliation. That moves to mending the broken relationship, bringing it together again. By the way, the anger of God towards sin led him to work, <laughs> to the work of reconciliation through Jesus. God was angry at sin, and, and God deployed Jesus to come and reconcile that broken relationship, live the life we could not live, die the death that we should have died, pay the penalty for sins, being buried in the tomb, rising again, conquering sin and death, and fixing the relationship. That's what forgiveness looks like, is paying the debt. And then we were then entrusted with a message. Therefore, we, the Apostle Paul says, in talking about the apostles, but also we are included in this we, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteous of God. And I'd like to, just like in the message right here, make it really short. Okay, let your anger be righteous. Don't take out retaliation. Just go and do reconciliation stuff. Amen. The end. I want this to be the end. I want this, I want this just to be the end of the message, and there we go. We're done. 
the, the challenge is, like, the chal- I mean, there, there really is a big challenge here. Um, you might call it the catch. This, and this is a difficult one. You have to be able to see yourself in order to assess if your anger is righteous or not. Anger is so hot an emotion that it really does, man, it's hard for you to see yourself when you're feeling it. Um, in Untangling the Emotions, the authors write, angry people almost never know they're angry people. <laughs> this makes sense if you think about it. Anger says, I'm right and you're wrong. And when you feel deeply right, it's extremely difficult to step back and say, maybe I'm the problem here. <laughs> the more angry you are, the more convinced you are. You're the problem. They're the problem. This is the problem. I'm not the problem. And people who are angry struggle greatly to perceive their own flaws. As a result, those who live in a regular state of anger, feeling morally superior and punishing those who disagree, end up driving people away till the angry person stands alone at the center of a relational circle of scorched earth. And maybe you know that person. He's always righteously angry, so righteously angry they can't see where they are contributing to the problem. So what do I do with my anger? Like, how do, I, how do I assess it? What do I do with it? I feel the anger. What do I do with it? How do I work, how do I work the gospel into my life to where the anger gets steered towards righteous ends? So I'm going to give you the end. Here's, 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 the, here's the path. Look at the law to see yourself. Let the law lead you, lead you to Jesus and let Jesus lead you to reconciliation. This, this is the path. Look at the law to see yourself. Let the law lead you to Jesus and let Jesus lead you to reconciliation. So let's look at the first. L- look at the law to see yourself. Here's the gospel in a f- single phrase. I am more wicked than I ever dared dreamed and more loved than I ever dared hope. This is the gospel. I'm more wicked than I ever dared dreamed and more loved than I ever dared hope. Uh, and the gospel contains both of those things. In fact, you can't approach the cross of Jesus and look at the cross and see Jesus dying on the cross for sins, paying the penalty for your sins. You can't look at that gruesome sort of picture in Scripture and not and, and like walk away and go, I'm kind of okay. Like you look at the cross and you go, I'm not okay. I mean, if that's what I deserve, man, I'm really not okay. If he's paying the penalty for my shortcomings, I am, man, I am so far from okay. I'm not okay. But you also can't look at the cross of Jesus without having this overwhelming sense of like, that's the God of the universe loving me. Like, loving me. If I'm not, if I'm that not okay and he still loves me, man, how big is his love? I mean, it's more extravagant than I could ever dare hope it to be. And people don't like, they don't like talking about the sinful stuff because they're like, man, just get to the grace piece. But man, the, the sinful stuff isn't opposed to the grace stuff. In fact, the grace of God is not a contradiction to the law of God. The grace of God is made more intense by the law of God. It's made more palpable. In fact, as you, as you, as you raise the standard of the law, what you see is grace abounding all the more. In fact, the Apostle Paul says it that way. Now, the law came to increase the trespass, the sin. But where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. So Jesus raises the bar on the law and in so, in so doing raises the bar of grace. This is what happens in the gospel. So you go a few verses earlier from the passage, it's kind of the setup to this whole angry conversation is verse 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, I've come to fulfill them. So my grace message isn't a contradiction to the law. In fact, I have come to fulfill the law 
And in fact, he says in verse 19, therefore, some of you are relaxing the law and the commandments, and I'm not coming to relax the laws and the commandments. In fact, if you relax it, you're least in the kingdom of heaven. I've actually come to raise the bar. If you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount and said, oh, I can do that, you've misread it. Like, that's not how it's written. I mean, Jesus goes, okay, you're not a murderer, but in your, in your anger, have you ever insulted anybody? Murder's in your heart. Yeah, I'm not an adulterer, but are you looking at pornography? Are you lusting in your heart? You're, you're not. <laughs> oh, okay, oh, love other people the way you want to be loved. Don't be greedy. Store your treasures in heaven, not on earth. And you, you start reading the Sermon on the Mount, and you're like, oh. He's just like putting weight upon weight upon weight. Like, what's the purpose of it? Paul says in Galatians 3.24, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. The law was never meant to save you. The law was meant to point you to the Savior. The law is a guide, a tutor. Uh, the, the, the law is exposing your need. And so what do I do with my anger? First, you've got to look at the law to see yourself. And when you look at the law to see yourself, here's what you see. I'm more wicked than I ever dared dream. You're like, I'm not, I'm not a murderer. And Jesus goes, tell me about the anger in your heart. Because a seed emerged there. And you're like, oh, snap. I'm more wicked than I ever dared dream. But then you let the law lead you to Jesus. And when you let the law lead you to Jesus, which is what you discover, I'm more loved than I could ever dare hope. Just, I just can't believe it. He'd, lo- he'd love me like this. You see, you cannot take the law of God seriously and at the same time be self-righteously anger, angry at somebody. Like you just can't do it. You, you, you cannot take the law of God seriously and, 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 be, and, be, and, be, and be self-righteous in, in your insult and anger at another human being. Because if you took the law of God seriously, you'd feel exposed, you'd feel humble. Have you noticed that we tend to, to judge others on the scale that most favors us? Have you ever noticed that about yourself? Like we tend to judge others on the scale that most favors us. Like you, you can see this in driving, for example. Like if everybody drove like you, the world would be a better place, wouldn't it? I mean, you tend to judge others by the scale, you know, like what a moron, I can't believe. You know, I, I, I tend to, to, to judge others on the scale that most favors me. And I, I can tell you without hesitation that no one mows the yard in my house as good as I do. Like I do it perfectly. It's done right the first time. But when a child mows the yard, there's always an instruction period following. Like, hey, you didn't do it, but you had to figure it out, you know. And there, there's like, there's like uh, what's going on? And, and, but I can tell you also there are things that I don't do in the house very well either. They're like, I can't figure out how to load the dishwasher properly, apparently. And so I don't get that one right either. And so there, there's all these different sort of, you know, sort of rules. Have you noticed that sometimes we tend to sort of, you know, feel not okay with ourselves? And when we feel not okay with ourselves and we try to, it's natural, we try to find things that make us feel okay by ourselves. And that becomes the standard by which we judge other people by. It makes us pretty arrogant. In other words, we relax the law in certain areas to make it personally achievable whatever that law is. And Jesus says, whoever relaxes law, <laughs> relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same. We call it least in the kingdom of heaven. He's like, hey, I didn't come to relax the law. And he does this refrain often in the sermon. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old. 
In other words, the world out there is telling you, as long as you're not a murderer, you're okay. In fact, you know, if you ask somebody, are you a good person? They say, well, they, they, you know, it's common. And common actors, well, I haven't murdered anybody, you know. Well, that's the standard of a good person, man. That's, that's a pretty, you know, I can get under that, you know, I think I can get, you know, by that bar. But Jesus says, I say to you, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Let's look at the anger and let's look at what you said in your anger. The seed of murder is in self-righteous anger, like it's there in you. And you may have never murdered anybody, but the seed of it's there. Like it's, it's, it's like inside of you. You see, righteous anger is moved by love, while self-righteous anger is moved by disdain. He goes, hey, in your anger, have you ever in your insults called somebody you fool? He says in verse 22. Uh, in other words, uh, some, you may have the Aramaic in, in a translation you've read in the past, uh, the, the Aramaic word raka, which is a difficult word to sort of grab a hold of, but the word, it really means you good for nothing, you empty suit, you nobody. Uh, you could say it this way, have you ever in your anger insulted somebody in such a way over time that you subtly removed from them their humanity and you narrowed them to a single dimension and you defined them in your mind and your heart by only the offense and there's nothing else you could see in them. Have you ever noticed in your anger and your insulting of the other person how you can in a moment rob from them in your imagination their Imago Dei? Have you ever been so angry at somebody You've acted in that anger in such a way in your heart and by the words you've said, by things you've uttered, that you've just excluded somebody from the community of humanity. Miroslav Wolf in Exclusion and Embrace says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence <laughs> of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrous into the sphere of shared humanity and herself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. What he says is you can't walk into the presence of God and, and, and practice the double exclusion, excluding yourself from the community of sinners while excluding the person who you are in conflict with from the community of humanity. Uh, the gospel does that. You see, self-righteous anger maintains a three-dimensional view of the self while reducing the object of anger to a single dimension. It's just like, oh yeah, I'll keep a, a three-dimensional view of me, but I'm taking from you all the other parts of you. I don't know if this is helpful for you. This was helpful for me. And so sometimes I, I hesitate to sort of share too much of my sort of personal narrative with this, but, you know, maybe if it relates to you, it does. I don't know. I sometimes, like, uh, struggle more in my anger, not, uh, not with lashing out against people, but lashing out against myself. And sometimes it's easy for me to exclude myself from the community of humans to rob for myself the Imago Dei. Because it's like, I, 
you know, just so angry about my behavior or my performance or what I haven't achieved or have achieved. And if that's you, I just want you to hear this. You are so much more than a sinner to Jesus. Like, he doesn't see you as with a singular dimension. To Jesus, you're not just like this loser who's out there messing up all the time. You're a person for whom he has an unfailing love. And, and I just want you to hear these words, but God shows his love for us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Or, take it up a notch a few verses later in Romans 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God takes your sin seriously. Okay? The cross is proof of it, by the way. The cross is proof that sin is taken seriously. And it's important, I think, sometimes to know that because I need to know that my forgiveness is real. But God seriously loves you. Oh man, He seriously loves you. And this is a truth, and I hope you believe it. It is impossible to outsend the grace of God. It is. God's capacity to forgive far exceeds your capacity to sin. And Christian, I want you to hear, hear me on this, okay? Hear me on this. The, the more you become aware of your own sinfulness, the more you will become aware of God's faithfulness. Like it just shows up in your life. The gospel is, I'm more wicked than I ever dared dream, but I am more loved than I ever dared hope. That is the gospel. Like I, am, I am so beloved. And so what do I do with my anger? Well, first, I have to let the law expose me. I have to see myself and my own unrighteousness. But I also have to let the law lead me to Jesus. Because when the law leads me to Jesus, it leads me to grace, leads me to forgiveness, helps me to experience reconciliation. So then I can take the message of reconciliation out of the world. I can, I can let Jesus lead me to reconciliation. And the more you understand about, Je about what Jesus has done to reconcile you, the more capable you will become in reconciling others. You should write this one down. A mark of the transformed Christian heart is the ministry of reconciliation, not the impulse of retaliation. And Jesus is saying, hey, there's a distinct way my people are to be living in the world. You won't see my people on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram and in conversation on the street punching back, returning reviling for reviling, hate for hate, evil for evil, blow for blow. But what you will find is a people who have been radically reconciled and living out of that reconciliation, practicing a ministry of reconciliation with others. You'll find a people mending relationships, not breaking relationships. You'll find people out there turning the other cheek, going the extra mile. Uh, you, you'll, you'll see when other people are saying, when they strike you, you strike back harder, and you'll see Christian people show up and say, no, that's not how we do it. We do it differently. 
So if you're offering your gift at the altar, Jesus says, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And so John Stott does a helpful work here. He just puts this in common vernacular. He says, if you are in church in the middle of a service of worship and you suddenly remember that your brother has a grievance against you, leave church at once and put it right. Do not wait until the service is ended. So I'm just going to pause and see if anybody needs to go right now. Mend something. You got something to mend right now? He says, seek out your brother and ask his forgiveness. First go and then come. First go and be reconciled to your father, and then come and offer or go, sorry, sorry, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your worship to God. All right, so if you're struggling with anger and finding reconciliation difficult, go back to the cross of Christ, look at your sin, receive His grace, and there you'll find the power to reconcile. So if you're like, man, I'm, I'm struggling right now, you got to go back and go, you know what, I'm more wicked than I ever dared dream, but also more loved than I ever dared hope, and, and I've been reconciled by the finished work of Jesus, and now I can go with His power to seek that reconciliation work. N.T. Wright says, reconciliation takes precedence even over worship. Reconciliation is not simply an ideal we might strive for. It is an achievement, an accomplishment, which, which, <laughs> which we in turn must now embody. Let me just put this plainly. Uh, we aren't a people that aspire for reconciliation. That's not who we are. We are people who do reconciliation work. That's who we are. And so what Jesus is calling us here to is not to aspire for, uh, in an idea form, some reconciliation to happen out there in the world. No, he's calling us to be a people who actively, as an act of worship, seek reconciliation in the world around us. Christians aren't to let anger grow in our hearts. We're to be quick to seek reconciliation. That's what he says here in 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. John Stott just does a great rephrasing here. He says, if you've unpaid debt and your creditor takes you to court to get his money back, come to terms with him quickly. Make a settlement out of court. Even while you are on your way to court, pay your debt. Otherwise, once you reach the court, it'll be too late. Your accuser will sue you before the judge, and the judge will hand you over to the police, and you will find yourself in jail, and you will never get out till you've paid the last penny. So payment before prison would be much more sensible. The key idea here is reconcile and reconcile now. Do it now. So if you want to change the world, I believe this, man, with all my heart. You want to change the world? It's not going to come through retaliation. It'll come through reconciliation. You want to change the world? It's not going to be going out there in the world and just punching back and punching back harder. It's not going to be how you change the world. You want to change the world? Be a people of reconciliation. Be people who are ambassadors of reconciliation. Be a people who show up and let your anger be the kind of anger that moves you to bring people together, to resolve conflict, to create reconciliation in the world around you. Leslie Newbegin said, it is not the superiority of the church's preaching, which finally disarmed the Roman imperial power, but the faithfulness of its martyrs. It was people who said, I will lay down my life for you. 
Let me just put it plainly. I think this is, this is what I'm feeling in the world, and I, and I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. And honor shame culture, gaining power in retaliation will become a greater value than losing power in reconciliation. You watch it happen. In an honor shame culture, what will happen is that the greatest, the greatest good, the greatest value will be holding on to power. And the way you hold on to power is by fighting off people who threaten your power. That's how honor shame culture works. And Jesus go, shows up. He says, no, the way of my kingdom is laying down your power for others, even for the sake of reconciliation. You lay down your power. You live differently. Here's my conviction. You want to be a good witness? I, I think our friends are tired of all the fighting, and they need to see a better way. They just need to see a better way. They need to see people who are, whose anger is leading to reconciliation, not leading to retaliation. They need to see a better way. They're going hungry. Who's doing it? And you want to live the better way, here's how you do it. What do I do with my anger? Look at the law to see yourself. That's what you do. Look, you're messed up. Okay? But the good news is, when you realize that, it leads you to Jesus, and he fixes you up. And when you get to Jesus, and you experience his grace, and he, he fixes you, and he reconciles you, and he starts to work that ministry of reconciliation in your life, Jesus will, will lead you on a mission of reconciliation. That's what will happen. And I think those are the movements of the heart that have to happen. You have to look at yourself with the law in mind, and you have to let that law lead you to Jesus, let Jesus lead you to reconciliation. So I'll just pray with that in mind. So, Father, uh, sometimes I just, you know, when I'm, even in the act of preaching, I'm, I'm sometimes just sort of second-guessing uh, a phrase or a turn. And one of the things I'm hoping for right now, just in, in the service, is that is that anybody here who's got, you know, anger, like just right in their heart uh, towards another person uh, or somebody's angry at them and there's conflict in a relationship, uh, that uh, you allow the humility of the gospel uh, to also produce courage in the heart uh, to go and seek out reconciliation. I'm so grateful that you've taken care of like all the things that broke our relationship down. You just forgave and covered them for me and I pray you'd help me to be more forgiving and cover, you know, lose power to save relationships. Uh, thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing that. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.